we're thankful this morning that you don't need any days off from us. You are a God who uh, does not take vacations away from our cities to be away from people, but Lord, rather you are intimately connected to our lives, every part of our lives, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Whether we are active or whether we are sleeping, you are our sustainer, our creator, uh, the one who had thought of us before the foundation of the world. And we thank you, Lord God. As much as you are active in our daily lives here, Lord, there are also activities that you are constantly doing and involved in in the heavenlies, uh, of which we know very little, if anything. It is amazing to think, Lord, of your ability, your energy, your uh, constant uh, emotional life, the God that you are. Lord, you are so far above us, and yet you are intimate, involved in our lives, and we are so thankful this morning. As we open your word this morning together, Lord, I pray that you would come and be our help in terms of the preaching of your word. May it go forth in your power. Lord, I am incredibly weak, but you are incredibly strong, and I pray that your strength and your voice, your word, would go forth this morning and do its work in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Tomorrow is the 5th of February, which marks exactly 361 years to the date since Quebec's largest ever earthquake. So on the 5th of February, 1663, up in the Charlevoix region, there was an earthquake that's estimated to have measured between 7.3 and 7.9 by modern Richter scale values. And this quake caused extensive damage near its epicenter. Great landslides happened along the banks of the St. Lawrence and the St. Maurice and the Batiscan rivers, uh, turning the waters, in fact, muddy for an entire month. And there's also record of an entire waterfall being completely leveled uh, others being greatly altered. Well, friends, the effects of that 1663 earthquake were experienced over hundreds of kilometers. In fact, over 700 kilometers to the south on the banks of the Massachusetts Bay near Boston, the Charlevoix quake caused houses to shake, which resulted in many of the chimney tops on those houses cracking apart and breaking. In the 10th chapter of Daniel that we're in today, this is a chapter that teaches us that the struggles, the tribulations, the horrors that we face on this earth are like those chimney tops that cracked and broke near the Massachusetts Bay. In other words, Daniel 10 is a chapter of scripture that teaches us that our troubles in this life are connected to, they reverberate from a far greater battle, an epicenter that is happening elsewhere. Daniel 10 shows us that the upheavals, the agonies that we face here on this fallen earth are but echoes of a greater, far more intense, celestial struggle that is taking place in the heavenlies. The epicenter of the battle is not here in our experience, but rather the epicenter is in the heavenlies amongst spiritual forces. And so this morning we jump back in to the book of Daniel at chapter 10, verse one, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he, that is, 
Daniel, understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So let's track through this together. This verse tells us that Daniel received a word. He received a vision from God in the third year of King Cyrus's reign. So then the year here in which Daniel received this word, received this vision, would be about 536 or 535 BC. Now by that time, two important things had happened. First of all, many of the people who had been exiled to Babylon had now returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel. They returned to begin the work of reconstructing their city and reconstructing their temple, but they had been experiencing stiff opposition to that task. So that's the first thing. The second thing, by this point, King Cyrus of Persia, we need to understand, was co-ruling with his eldest son, Cambyses. Now, Cambyses had been put in charge of the area around Babylon. And Cambyses was a rather unsavory dude. Uh, although he had been a successful military and successful administrative leader, Cambyses, son of Cyrus, was also known for his heavy drinking and his mood swings. And there was also the fact that he was militantly opposed to all religions that were different than his own. There is a strong connection that can be made between the stiff opposition that was being experienced by the returnees to Jerusalem as they attempted to rebuild their temple, a connection between that and the rule of Cambyses back on Babylonian territory. Now, no doubt, the now almost 90-year-old Daniel was very aware of this upstart Cambyses and his belligerent ways. And Daniel was likewise aware of the troubles that the returnees to Jerusalem had been experiencing as they attempted their rebuilding efforts. For his part, Daniel remains in Babylon. Now we're not entirely sure why he didn't return with the others to Jerusalem. It's very possible that age played a factor, but it's also possible that God had simply directed Daniel to stay put, to finish his mission there in Babylon. But now what was the deal with this word that God gave to Daniel in the third year of Persian rule? So notice our verse says that this word was true and it was a great conflict. Probably the rendering in the NIV, the New International Version, is more on point here with uh, looking at the original Hebrew and translation. The NIV says that the word Daniel received concerned a great war, concerned a great war. Now the details of this great war uh, aren't actually laid out for us until chapter 11. Chapter 10 that we're looking at this morning is just kind of a, like a long warm-up to the content that is given in chapter 11. But let's go forward now to verses two and three. Now Daniel tells us what he was up to during the time when that word from God had arrived. He says, in those days when this word had arrived, I, Daniel, was, or I had been, mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine, chocolate ganache entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So listen, friends, when that word of God had come to him, Daniel had been in a place of mourning and doing a partial fast and also refusing to wear his Aveeno daily moisturizer. 
Daniel had been denying himself, we need to understand, denying himself his usual earthly comforts, no doubt seeking the Lord out of his deep concern for his people who were struggling to rebuild back in Jerusalem. Daniel's actions here in verses 2 and 3 reflect his personal heartache over the heartache his people were experiencing back in Jerusalem. And then, my friends, something truly earth-shattering happens to Daniel. Verses 4 through 7. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, emerald green. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. Now, who is this breathtaking figure that Daniel sees here. It's, it's another issue. Remember last week and the week before, all the debated issues? <laughs> it's another issue that is debated by interpreters. Now, it could be, could be that this figure is the angel Gabriel in all his splendor, which is the argument that some make. Others, as they look particularly at the first chapter of Revelation, with its description of Jesus, they find parallels here in Daniel 10 and argue that the figure here must be a manifestation of Jesus that happened prior to his incarnation in Bethlehem. Now, I almost go in that direction myself, but not quite. And the reason I don't think that the figure here in Daniel 10 is Christ manifest to Daniel is that the figure will soon talk about having the archangel Michael come to help him in the celestial war that he was waging. And I think it would be strange if Christ, who is the ultimate divine warrior par excellence, if he would need help in his battle. So who is this breathtaking figure who's now appeared uh, before Daniel? I follow the argument of a commentator named Ian Duguid. Duguid looks at the first chapter of Ezekiel, and he notices that the four living creatures, the four living creatures who are described there, these direct attendants of God, these heavenly beings, who are responsible to drive God's chariot. They bear striking similarities to this figure who appears in Daniel 10. So let's walk through this. In Ezekiel 1, 5 and 1, 10, the living creatures are described as having human features, uh, even with all their other animal-like features but human features, and Daniel 10.5 describes the figure who appears to Daniel as a man. In Ezekiel 1.13 and 14, the living creatures appear like fire, like torches, like lightning. 
And likewise, in Daniel 10.6, the figure appearing to Daniel has the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. In Ezekiel 1.7, the legs and feet of the living creatures sparkled like burnished bronze, it says. And sure enough, in Daniel 10.6, the arms and legs of the figure who appears to Daniel were like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the Daniel 10 figure also has a body-like barrel, verse 6. The living creatures in Ezekiel 1 also bear the appearance of barrel, Ezekiel 1.16, as do the wheels of the chariot. And then finally, the sound of the wings of Ezekiel's living creatures, Ezekiel 1.24, the sound is like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And the voice of the Daniel 10 figure, according to verse 10, is like the sound of a multitude. Now, if do-good is right, that the figure who appears to Daniel in Daniel 10 is one of the living creatures who appears in Ezekiel chapter 1, then, then what the elderly Daniel sees here in front of him on the bank of the Tiger, Tigris River, what he sees is nothing less, friends, than a close, intimate attendant of God. Daniel sees a staggering, in the truest sense of the word, staggering, indescribably powerful, and magnificent supernatural being who directly reflects the glory of the God that he attends, which might explain why he looks like Christ, but maybe isn't quite Christ. Now listen, look with me at verse seven. This reminds us a lot of the, the experience of Saul of Tarsus when he was on the road to Damascus. When the risen Jesus Christ appeared to Saul on that road with such glory, with such brightness, with such blazing holiness that, that Saul ended up temporarily blinded for three days, remember that story, the men who had been traveling with Saul saw nothing. They heard the voice of Jesus, which caused them to be speechless, but they didn't see what Saul saw. And we have something very similar happening here in Daniel 10, 7. Daniel tells us that he alone saw the vision of this gleaming man. The men who were with him did not see the vision, but listen, in the moment that the vision happened, something happened to these men. Something frightening happened to these guys. They sensed or they felt such a weighty, awe-inspiring presence that great trembling fell upon them appropriately and they ran to hide. This living creature has come, we need to see, drenched in the magnificent glory of God and just being there in that vicinity is too much for these men. They run desperately to try to find a hiding place. Now, you know, friends, a lot of people claim that God visited them in person to have a chat with them. And I think maybe we should run away from such people who make such questionable and flippant claims because the records of the Bible of God drawing physically near to people usually include descriptions of those people collapsing or running away 
or fainting or being so overwhelmed like Isaiah was that, that he was threatening to disintegrate. I am undone, he says, Isaiah 6. The truth is that in our fallen condition, prior to the reception of our glorified bodies, which is coming, it's simply no fun to have God draw us so near like he does here in Daniel 10. Let's go to verse eight. Daniel says, so I was left alone and saw this great vision and what? I started jumping around in joy when God drew near to me like this through his living creatures. No, no, that's not what the elderly, longtime faithful servant of God named Daniel says here. What Daniel says is the vision of this man clothed in pure priestly linen with a body like beryl and eyes like flaming torches and his voice like that of a football stadium full of people all shouting at once. This vision caused all the strength to drain out of Daniel's body. And he goes on here, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. God draws near to Daniel through God's Christ-resembling living creature, and Daniel's elderly frame is devastated. No strength, no blood in his face. Everything is quite simply drained right out of him. Now, friends, some of us, what I'm about to say, but I think we can be very thankful that we've never had an experience like Daniel had here. When God drew so near to him like this, the glory coming near would threaten our very existence. Dale Davis encourages us to be thankful thankful to those like Daniel who had to endure this unsettling presence of God. He says, we seldom, if ever, think of it, the horror and pain the Lord's servants endured in order to be the vehicles through whom his word is passed on to us in the scriptures. He says, we sit comfortably at our desks or tables with a companionable mug of coffee, we read the prophets, we scarcely think of how Daniel was physically and emotionally wiped out. Or Ezekiel plunged into a mental morass of anguish and anger. In short, Davis says, of how much the word of God cost them. If we did, we would more highly prize and tenderly reverence what we have received at their hands. Close quote, amen. In verse nine, things become too much for Daniel to bear and he loses consciousness. He says, then I heard the sound of this supernatural being's words, this football stadium worth of sound coming at him. And as I heard the sound of his words, I passed out. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. He just toppled straight over. Daniel faints dead away. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me. Isn't this beautiful? A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. You get the picture here. So here in verse 10, we have the first of three touches that this glorious man gives to Daniel. Wayne Towner has called these three angelic touches. He's called them celestial first aid. <laughs> so here in verse 10, this, this first touch 
of celestial first aid brings Daniel now from his position, lying face first in the dirt, now to all fours. Now Daniel's on his hands and knees. He's revived, but he's shaking. He's trembling. Verse 11, the glorious man says to Daniel, listen to what he says to Daniel. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. Imagine this thing with flaming eyes, body like barrel. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling, still shaking. Now, friends, did you notice that tremendous, tremendous encouragement as the verse started? O Daniel, man greatly loved. God wants Daniel to know that he is greatly loved. The 90-year-old Daniel is now standing upright. He's still shaking and trembling, reeling from the breathtaking vision of this fiery man, still troubled about his people back home who are facing so much heat in their efforts to rebuild things. And Daniel, I think, is probably sad at this moment that he's not there with them. And in that moment, God sends assurance of his great love for Daniel. And we should pause over this and see here the sweetness of our God. He is always so timely with his assurances toward us. Verse 12, the majestic supernatural being said to me, fear not, <laughs> fear not, Daniel. Here's another timely word, right, given to Daniel. Fear not. God had said to Abram at the time and to Isaac and to Joshua and to Gideon, fear not. And now God assures Daniel that he should not be afraid. Fear not, trembling Daniel, he says. Now listen to what he says. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been what? Heard, and I have come, why? Because of your words. Wow! This is incredible. Daniel had been mourning, remember? He had been doing that partial fast, refusing his aftershave lotion, praying to God in humility, praying to God for understanding about his situation and the precarious situation of his people back in Jerusalem. And now, this fearsome angelic man says to Daniel, Daniel, your prayers have been heard and your prayers, Daniel, are the reason that I'm here with you now. Wow. As Veldkamp puts it, Daniel's prayers succeeded in drawing angels from heaven to earth. And we might alter that just slightly and say a weak and troubled Daniel's prayers succeeded in drawing angels from heaven to earth. My friends, how incredibly encouraging is this? This angelic figure has come bringing the astonishing presence of God to this frail, weak, elderly servant of God. Tremendously encouraging. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting on the bottom of your overturned sailboat and you're about 100 kilometers offshore in the Atlantic Ocean, you're alone you're freezing cold, your clothing is soaked, and you haven't eaten anything for hours. And now it's dusk, and the billows and the waves are starting to roll bigger and heavier, and you fear for your very life at this point. But, but you managed, 
a few hours ago to put out a distress call. And you wonder if anybody heard that call. And suddenly, you hear, off in the distance, the sound of a helicopter. And it's getting closer to where you are. It's coming right toward you. And then it arrives and it hovers above you. I can't make the sound of a helicopter, but just imagine it. And out of the side door of that helicopter comes a special forces guy on a rope. And he's coming down to rescue you and he's coming down to get you out of there. And he picks you up off that sailboat bottom. But in that moment, friends, and this is the important thing, in that moment, many of your problems still remain. You're still almost hypothermic. You're still starved. Your clothes are still soaking wet. You're still feeling panicky. But just the simple fact of the presence of that special forces guy is all you need in that moment. His presence means you're safe. And the angelic figure is now there with Daniel. The angelic figure has arrived with God's presence because of Daniel's prayers. Daniel still doesn't have all his questions answered. Daniel is still feeling very weak. Daniel is still troubled. But the presence of God that is drawn near through this figure is more than enough for Daniel. As Brian Chappell says, we do not need all our problems solved immediately if we know God is with us. When the infinitely powerful and holy God comes to hear and to be near us through our prayers, we can face whatever we must with assurance of his care. Close quote. Let's go forward now to verses 13 and 14. The angelic man keeps talking, and he says to Daniel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now remember at the beginning today, we were talking about the Charlevoix earthquake causing chimney tops to break in Massachusetts over 700 kilometers away. The angelic figure who's speaking with Daniel gives a description here of the epicenter. Notice, first of all, that he mentions the prince of the kingdom of Persia who had withstood him, fought against him, for 21 days. And then in the very next breath, he mentions, notice, Michael, one of the chief, what? Princes who had come to give help in the battle. Notice that Michael, the archangel, who is only mentioned four times in the Bible, he is called a prince here, which would imply that this other prince of Persia is likewise an angelic or supernatural figure. But, in his case, an angelic figure who battles in opposition against both Michael and the angelic being who is doing the talking here. My friends, what's being described here in verse 13 is the epicenter. A frightening clash of celestial titans. A fierce battle taking place in the heavenlies. The epicenter. And the cracking chimney top that echoes this heavenly battle on earth are the earthly rulers of Persia as they war against 
conquer earthly kingdoms like Babylon on earth and make life difficult for Israel in their attempts to rebuild their temple. My friends, what is going on at the epicenter in the heavenlies, we need to understand, has ripple effects here on earth. There is this prince of Persia here, this evil supernatural being who rallied the earthly Persian rulers and influenced those rulers to do the bidding of Satan on the earth with the aim of doing what? Of bringing harm and of bringing heartache to the people of God. The prince of Persia here is an Old Testament example of what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.12. This prince here is a cosmic power over this present darkness, a spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. This prince of Persia, we need to understand, is allied with his general, who is Satan himself. Whenever we see governments passing laws or implementing decrees that make life difficult for God's people, we have to look beyond what is seen to the unseen. Behind those laws and those decrees and behind the anti-Christian earthly rulers and politicians who promote those laws and decrees are spiritual forces in the heavenly places sinister, celestial forces. The evil forces at the epicenter are causing brokenness on the earth. There's a very incisive description of the epicenter of things that was once given by the Dutch theologian and politician Abraham Kuyper who said, if once the curtain were pulled back, and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. My friends in Jesus, there is more going on in our reality than meets the eye. Things are not as they seem. Another very crucial point we shouldn't miss here in verse 13 is that this angelic man describes the heavenly conflict as going on for how long? Don't miss this, 21 days. But now he had managed to arrive there and be with Daniel. The last time we heard about 21 days was in verses 2 and 3, where Daniel's fasting and prayer was described as being three weeks or 21 days. So Daniel's praying, don't miss this, Daniel's praying for 21 days had been connected directly to this clash of the titans that had been happening in the heavenlies. Whether Daniel knew it or not, his prayers were warfare prayers that lasted the same time period as the heavenly warfare. It's not by accident. His prayers, my friends, were an engagement in cosmic conflict. And listen, the angel will soon give Daniel God's word in chapter 11, part of which says that Persian rule will end and Greek rule will succeed it. And so it's no wonder that the prince of fought hard to keep this word about Persia's demise from going out. But his fighting, this prince of Persia's fighting, had proven ineffective in the end. Michael 
had shown up to the fight. Now you heard it from me, you don't want to go up against Michael. We learn in Revelation 12:7 that Michael has leadership over other angels. And together, this angelic army uh, defeats the dragon himself and his minions, Revelation 12. In Jude 9, Michael is called an archangel, that is, chief angel. So Michael is the seven-star general, if there is such a thing. Michael's it, the seven-star general. He is the ultimate champion in God's army. As Chapel puts it, I think he's right. He says, when Michael is on our side, the forces of evil don't stand a chance. Michael had stepped into the fight, says the angelic man, because I was left there with the kings, plural, of Persia, the co-rulers. Cyrus and his son Cambyses, who had been making life difficult for God's people on earth, and the angelic man had been warring against the plans of those earthly kings, even as he warred against the power of the angelic prince of Persia, who was swaying those earthly kings. Verse 14, the angel says to Daniel, I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And then in verses 15 through 17 now, the focus we need to see is really on Daniel's weakness again, his weakness. Daniel now understands at this point that his three weeks worth of intense prayer had been connected directly with the three-week warfare that had been raging in the heavenlies, a warfare that was connected also to the struggles of Daniel's people, their experience in rebuilding the temple with all that opposition, and all this is too much for Daniel. How many of us here are frail human beings? Daniel's a frail human being, verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, what happened? I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Daniel is literally speechless now. As it dawns on him just how momentous the spiritual life really is. He can't speak. Verse 16, And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and now here we have our second administration of celestial first aid in the chapter. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains, not sure what kind, but pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. Daniel is just wiped out here. Verse 17 Daniel says, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Daniel's having trouble breathing. And what he utters here, friends, is his utter weakness. Yes, I am weak, Lord. I am out of breath, Lord. I have no strength, Lord. As I stand here before this heavy dose of your glory, I concede I am inadequate and I feel like fainting again. Daniel shows us, don't miss this either, he shows us such enormous spiritual maturity here. Spiritual maturity. Here he stands in the presence of God's glory and all Daniel can say is, I got nothing, Lord. The Lord loves it, friends, when we get to that place that Daniel is at here. God loves it when we come to grips with our own inadequacy so that he can shine into our lives his adequacy. 
and his power. God loves it when we stop trusting in our own strength and trust instead in his. If you like to mark up your Bible or highlight it, I invite you to mark up this verse. This is a great statement in verse 17 of godliness and spiritual maturity. Verses 18 and 19, Daniel says, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. This is now our third touch and final touch of celestial aid in the chapter, celestial first aid. And he said, O man, here it is again, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Now what a mighty divine string of encouragements here. You are greatly loved, fear not. What are you going through this week? You are greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong, and be of good courage. Wow. And Daniel then says, and as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak. I'm ready to hear the vision, for you have strengthened me. Verse 20, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. Yes, this angelic man will be returning to the epicenter, to the clash of titans in the heavenlies. And when I go out, he says, behold, what will happen? The prince of Greece will come. So there is a satanic emissary here called the prince of Greece in the heavenlies who will likewise sway the decisions, sway the actions of Greek leaders on the earth. Verse 21 and our final verse this morning, which is chapter 11, verse one. The angel says, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. Now in chapter 11, what's the angelic man going to tell Daniel, he's going to tell Daniel the course of future history. And it's this future history that is inscribed in the book of truth. As Tremper Longman says, God has scripted history. God has scripted history. And now this angel will reveal that future history from the book of truth where it's inscribed as chapter 11 proceeds. The angel continues in verse 21 by saying, there is none who contends by my side against these, against these evil powers in the heavenly places, except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, yes. The appointment of Darius the Mede on earth in Babylon had not simply been due to earthly political plans and earthly aspirations, no. Darius's confirmation in his role on earth and the strength he received on earth was by a supernatural source for supernatural purposes in that moment, namely from this living creature, this angel who was speaking with Daniel. Things are not as they seem, my friends. Events and wars and the rise and fall of rulers in this world and our own struggles in this world are chimneys cracking, houses swaying from an epicenter that exists in the heavenlies, the titanic struggle of God and his angels against Satan and his fallen angels and powers who know that their time is almost up. But be of good cheer. There is a divine warrior named Jesus Christ, the uncreated Son of God, before whom the created Michael gladly bows. 
when Christ took on flesh and lived on this earth, many expected that he would start a war against the Romans who had been occupying the land. But the attention of the divine warrior was tuned instead to a far greater three-headed enemy called Satan, sin, and death. Jesus went to war freeing people from demonic fetters, giving life back to people, working miracle after miracle after miracle, healing people from diseases of all kinds wherever he went, the new creation had broken in to the middle of history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in his cross and resurrection, he disarmed the powers. As we said at the communion table, he stripped the powers. He brought the powers to their humiliation. It was D-Day on sin, death, and the devil. The victory was won. And the victory has been won. Hallelujah. And we await, friends, we await the final V-Day. The ultimate day of victory when all things will be made new, hallelujah, and there will be no more crying, there will be no more dying, there will be no more sorrow. But for now, we engage in our mop-up operations. The dragon has been slain, but his tail is still thrashing. We continue to fight on earth with God's armor on, knowing that our divine warrior is fighting for us, amen? in the heavenlies and that he has given us the victory and the final salvation that awaits us. Things are not as they seem. The battle is not ours. It is the Lord's. He has won and he will win. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the revelation of your word, which tells us gives us the picture of reality. Lord, we live in so much unreality in the course of a 24-hour day. We thank you for the reality, the sobering reminder of the warfare that's happening on behalf of your children, the ones that you have plucked out and saved. Lord, you are so great. We trust your warring on our behalf as we put your armor on that you have given us. Be with us this week in whatever we face. In Jesus' name, amen.